Warning, this episode of The Saucer Life may feature words from languages other than English, pronounced by a lifelong Midwesterner who can barely speak that convincingly, much less anything else. Listener discretion and indulgence is advised. I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking. This is Encounter 604. Um, what? We've heard a lot about hoaxes here on the show over the past 11 months. In some cases, like that of Cedric Allingham, the hoax is more or less exposed by credible people with good arguments and everybody sort of nods and goes on their way. In other cases, the line between hoax and fraud, dangerous, scary word, fraud, freighted with legal meaning, uh, in some cases, that line is blurred. Georgia Damsky's, sorry, Adamsky's faked saucer picks, for example. In that case, there was never any admission by Adamsky, but the convincing testimony and investigation of others has been passionately challenged by Adamsky's supporters. But what happens when a hoax is revealed, admitted to, and there's some rational questioning about whether the hoax as admitted to was the hoax that was actually carried out, and and an apparent group of believers continuing the story to some degree? That's what we're going to see today with the story of the UMO affair. That's U-M-M-O. Every time I've seen it, it's been spelled in all capital letters. Now, as stated in the little tongue-in-cheek listener advisory, my pronunciation of everything is awful. So for native speakers of uh, the languages we're going to encounter, particularly Spanish, but also the Amite language, of course, uh, apologies. Also, keep in mind that the source material in this encounter is translated into English from other languages like Spanish. So with those caveats in mind, Let's explore Amo. This story will take place over a long period of time, like a lot of the stories we look at, and like a lot of the stories we look at here on the show, it's going to be far more complex than we are able to cover in the time allotted. So, with that in mind, uh, let's go. It begins in February 1966 outside Madrid, Spain. Two witnesses, one of which was a man named José Luis Jordan de Peña, saw a white disc descending, shifting its color slightly, and on the disc was a symbol described as Cyrillic-looking, basically an inverted pair of parentheses with a plus sign between them. The next year, in the summer of 1966, a larger group of people, supposedly a few dozen, saw a saucer with the same symbol in another Madrid suburb. More sightings occurred, and investigators reported weird physical trace evidence, impressions from landing gear, burn marks on the ground, and some kind of metallic powdery substance. The weirdest thing that the investigators found were cylindrical containers that had Inside them, strips of 
a flexible but very durable material. And these strips had the same plus sign and parentheses symbol as the saucers that had been seen. Investigators identified the material as polyvinyl fluoride, which was manufactured by the DuPont Corporation and still is under the brand name Tedlar. According to the only chemistry resource I am able to understand, Wikipedia, polyvinyl fluoride is, quote, a polymer material mainly used in the flammability lowering coatings of airplane interiors and photovoltaic module back sheets. It's also used in raincoats and metal sheeting. And I'm not sure if this is a more or less reliable source than Wikipedia, but the developer of Tedlar, DuPont, tells us on their website, where they're trying to get me to buy Tedlar, that, quote, Tedlar, registered trademark, PVF films offer attractive, easy-to-clean, scuff-resistant surface protection to aircraft interiors. Tedlar also apparently has anti-graffiti properties, which is, you know, pretty cool unless you're that Banksy guy. And it's still a standard product offered by DuPont, which means that in 1967, as uh, Jacques Vallée um, talked about in, uh, in his uh, book Revelations, the primary consumer of Tedlar at the time was NASA. And it was, in Vallée's words, quote, not commonly available in Spain, although it could have been obtained by the military, a defense contractor, or a subsidiary of an American firm. So this is weird, right? Weird, but in a really interesting way. The witnesses and physical traces indicate a solid saucer case, but the Tedlar slash polyvinyl fluoride screams terrestrial origin. Actually, to me, because this is just where my mind goes, it, uh, it screams the very more specific military-industrial complex. In any case, as amazing as the sightings and physical traces might be or might have been, things got weirder when researchers in Spain began receiving documents and phone calls and documents, lots of documents, mailed from all over the world as far away as Australia. They originated, well, the information, the craft, everything, supposedly originated on a planet called Umo, orbiting a star called Ayuma, known to us here on Earth, at least those of us here on Earth who are going by the internationally recognized stellar graphic, stellar graphic, is that a word? Uh, stellar graphic, stellar cartographic designation, Wolf 424. And I've got to be honest, I almost messed up and said Wolf 359 because that was where Starfleet had their big battle against the Borg in the third season finale of Star Trek The Next Generation. The document's distribution extended beyond Spain into France and covered a variety of topics from things that were scientific in nature to discussions of religion and philosophy and life on Umo. There is information about the Umites living among us here on Earth, about them taking some Earthlings back to the planet Umo with them. Well, that might sound familiar to some of you. Um, and I don't know if it's the fact that I'm unable to read them in the original Spanish or French or just the dense nature of the material, but I got to be honest, they've always been a chore for me to get through. Part of my issue with them, and don't worry, we'll see some examples in a bit, 
is that there are always these umo language terms peppered throughout, and if you can't keep them straight, it gets really frustrating. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. So WAM, W-A-A-M, is our visible universe, what we all see. You, WAM, you hyphen WAM, is our twin anti-universe, or the anti-cosmos. WAM hyphen U, also WAM hyphen B, and WAM of the Buawa means the universe of living things. WAM hyphen OU, WAM hyphen BB, WAM of Buawa, and BIAI, B-I-A-E-I, means the universe of collective spirits or collective consciousness or universe of forms. So I love this. This is all in a chart on a website I'm going to refer to in a little bit. But WAM of the Buawa is the universe of living beings. WAM of Buawa, not of the Buawa, just WAM of Buawa is the universe of collective spirits or collective consciousness. Buawa. I really like that. Buawa. I will stop now. In the 1980s, American ufologist and UFO photo collector uh, Wendell Stevens translated a book called UFO Contact from Planet Umo in, uh, in collaboration with uh, with the author and, and one of the chief investigators, uh, a guy named Alberto Ribera. Wendell Stevens, we'll, we'll encounter him more than a few times over the course of, of this podcast, I am, I am very sure, made something of a, a career out of translating European UFO material into English, and in a lot of cases was the only source for a very long time of any sort of even semi-official English translation of this material. The Umo book discusses how the Umites eventually, or not eventually, originally, see, it was in that disclaimer, I can't even do English, how the Umites originally uh, began their their contact with the planet Earth much earlier than the mid-1960s. This is the straight dope, according to UFO Contact from Planet Umo. Apparently in 1950, inhabitants of the planet Umo, 14 light years away, landed on Earth. They lived among us for 55 years undetected, establishing their bases and acclimating themselves to our way of life. Then, in 1965, they started to make contact. Initially, they compiled a list of 20 carefully selected individuals. Most of them were Spanish. They included a playwright, a police officer, an employee of the American Embassy in Madrid, an engineer, an official of the telegraph office, a lawyer, and two of Spain's best-known ufologists, Antonio Ribera and Rafael Ferreols. Many of those on the list were also members of a small Spanish group, the Society of Friends of Space, including their founder president, Fernando Seams. According to the Umites, those on this particular list constitute the Madrid group. There are other groups all over the world. Okay, now in addition to not knowing English very well, I'm also not very good at math, but help me understand, folks, and, and tweet us at The Saucer Life if you can uh, help me parse this out. 
they landed on Earth in the 50s and lived among us for 55 years, or landed in 1950, lived among us for 55 years undetected, and then made contact for the first time in 1965. That might be a typo. It might be an error. It might be a printing error, but that's 15 years, not 55 years. Um, I'm going to be charitable and assume that is some sort of typographical error in whatever copy of this I have somehow found in whatever rummage sale I found it at. So they've been here since 1950. They've got groups all over the world. And the one that has the, the sort of initial sort of contact with them are the Spanish. Okay, so there we go. So how did they initially find Earth? Why would they come here? They claimed that in 1948, they picked up a radio signal and they were unable to decipher it and they, they traced it to a planet that they called Uyaga, or, which, <laughs> love this, translates to Cold Star of Quadrate. Quadrate is our sun. Apparently, this was a signal from some science ship from Norway, not a spaceship, an, an ocean-going ship. And it took place in 1934. The signal originated. 14 years later, Ummo receives it. And um, according to UFO contact from planet Ummo, quote, subsequent investigation confirmed the presence of such a ship transmitting on the frequency between these dates. So the Ummites are surprised at the evidence of intelligent life on our planet and decide to investigate. They send a ship that shows up in March of 1950 somewhere in the Alps, uh, the French Alps in a sparsely populated region. So this is all being revealed in the 60s and, and into the 70s as, um, as our planet's own efforts to reach out to the world beyond Earth and the world beyond the solar system and see what's out there as, as those are beginning. So I'm probably not the only one to see some kind of parallel between the Umites picking up a radio signal and interpreting it as intelligent life and deciding to investigate and our own efforts here on Earth to send out radio signals and, and, and to search for radio signals and things like that with the Arecibo array and and stuff like that. So there's some there's some parallels here that are that are pretty pretty interesting. So I mentioned that numerous numerous documents had been mailed to UFO researchers in Spain and in France from from various locations around the world. Where did these Amites? Let's just say they're Amites. Where did they learn to produce these documents? Do they have you know, a word processor or something on board their flying saucer. Well, fortunately, that uh, that angle was covered, as we hear in UFO contact from Ummo once again. The Ummo affair is riddled with doubtful aspects. While its supporters argue that it involves more contact with extraterrestrials than any other case before, it appears that the most contact anyone actually had was just a single telephone call. However there may have been one exception. 
Between 1967 and 1975, the members of the Madrid group received a letter from a man who claimed to be the Amites typist. Apparently, he had advertised for work in a newspaper and had subsequently been visited by two tall, fair-haired, respectable-dressed men. They told him they were Danish doctors and asked if he could type out scientific material for them on a regular basis. Initially, all went well until the day he read the following sentence. We come from a celestial body named Ummo, which is 14.6 light-years from the Earth. He took this at its face value and questioned the doctors. Eventually, they admitted that they were not Danish doctors at all, but extraterrestrial visitors. To prove their identity, they produced a tiny sphere just an inch or so in diameter, which one of them placed in midair before the typist. He looked into it and to his amazement saw a scene that had taken place in that same office on the preceding day. I don't know about you, but I know if I were asked to type something, and I came across a line that made me think the people who asked me to type it were aliens, that, you know, that they said they were aliens, my first response wouldn't be to think, oh my gosh, aliens are paying me to type up some stuff. It would be, <laughs> I'm going to make sure these guys pay me uh, because they're obviously nuts. Anyway, that origin story aside, or that bit of the origin story aside, there is a website out there nowadays, uh, science.org that contains a huge number of UMO-related documents. And there's a preface to the English translation that I think is pretty interesting uh, for a number of reasons. I'm going to convey this to you, and we'll talk about why I think it's interesting. Strangely enough, the interest shown in ET phenomena manifests itself differently from country to country. In England, one hears about crop circles, whereas in the USA it is Area 51 and individual testimonials of implantations or abductions. In Europe, particularly in Spain, the origin of the Umite letters, and France, the Ummo affair is more widely known, due no doubt to the books written on the subject. The interest shown in ET phenomena manifests itself differently from country to country. That's not strange. That's just that's that's just reality. Things are perceived differently depending on one's cultural and, and social and political and economic and, and linguistic context. Well, if something's from Mars, it should look exactly the same everywhere to everybody. Well, that's just dumb. Strangely enough, no, not strangely enough. Strangely enough, you don't seem to get that things are different in different places. Anyway, um, I, I can't speak for anyone else, but this sounds like a bit of a generalization bordering on caricature. However, and I I'm, I'm, think I'm thankful for this, unlike most characterizations of American ufology, there's no mention of Roswell, which is a little refreshing. In any case, what do we get and what do we have when we look at these Umite documents? The in the words of the Amo Sciences website, essential texts that have been officially translated and offered on their website total about 180 pages. The complete run of documents that the site features in the original Spanish and French run to almost 2,000 pages. And I did not want to rely on Google Translate too much. We're 
We're scholars, you and I, full of intellectual integrity and stuff. So let's restrict ourselves to the materials that have actually been translated by humans. Here is an an example, an example or a sample of the science-focused material. Remember, the word wham refers to the universe or the, the George Michael duo from the 80s. This is from a set of documents sent to Spanish UFO researcher Enrique Filigrasa in 1967. It is very difficult for the OME, man, by extension human, by another extension intelligent living being, to have a true perception of the real nature of the physical world which surrounds us. Apparently, the mental images we have made for ourselves of this medium which surrounds us can lead us to conclude in error that the physical world is as we see, touch, or feel it. But a careful analysis by the scientists of UMO, as well as by Earth scientists and those of other galactic civilizations possessing a certain degree of culture, revealed that our WAM is not as our senses normally perceive it, So, the vivid colors we enjoy looking at a flower garden are but a beautiful psychological perception. There is no chromatic richness that exists outside of us. Only a range of electromagnetic frequencies remains as the last substratum of perception. The OEMI is the only being of the WAM that goes beyond the limits of its own organism to understand the world, and it uses the spirit to this end as an intellectual means since our bodily senses, nervous system, and cortical mechanisms of synthesis and psychological perception completely distort reality. Let us see, for an example, how our physiological bodies distort the truth by masking things in beautiful clothing, without which our WAM, or universe, viewed as is, would come across as nothing but a cold succession of ibuzu-u out of phase with each other. We will explain this concept shortly. Spoiler alert, no, they won't. When you take, for example, a cigarette lighter between your fingers, you are aware that it is there, cold, shiny. It is thus there, between your index finger and thumb. It is not a fiction, it exists. But this lighter is nothing but a simple perception. The physicists of Oaga, the planet squared, the Earth, could tell you more about this simple pocket lighter. They would say, for example, you are not actually touching it in spite of your sensory perception, since there is of large relative distance between the metal atoms and the electronic clouds of the atoms of the skin covering your fingers. Perhaps a layman would timidly object if this small piece of metal is not touching his skin. It is impossible to hold it and that it should then fall to the ground. But the earth scientist will speak to him about force fields, tensors, repulsions between negative electric charges. He will suggest that the metal's low temperature produces this cold sensation and that it is the consequence of the low amplitude of the vibration of its molecules compared to those of the skin. And he will point out that the compact appearance of the chrome-plated object is illusory since the atomic nuclei are as separate from each other as the stars of a galaxy. An Earth expert in physiological optics will say to you that the real brightness of the object is about ten times larger than the apparent brightness, but that when the light crosses our eye, the crystalline lens and the vitreous humor absorb almost all the photons, so only a very reduced luminous energy arrives at the retina. Yes, it's still going. Hang in there, folks. 
An Earth physician will smile if you ask him how the light of the flame arrives at the cerebral cortex, and he will explain why the light never arrives at the brain, but rather that the photons, when striking the retina, induce codified impulses which are transmitted by the neurons of the optic nerve in the form of an electric message, in the form of a code, so that the resemblance between the butane flame and the message our brain receives from the retina is the same as that between a grazing cow and the letters that make up its name. And finally, a neuropsychiatrist will tell you in very vague terms, for he himself does not know many steps of the process, how the brain combines the millions of codified impulses into one synthesized perception. The only image we have of the mysterious lighter and the flame which exist apart from us is a sensory illusion. Indeed, such an image of the lighter, however familiar it may be to us, has as much in common with the true object as the letters D-A-F-F-O-D-I-L have with the plant they designate. The Oemi, or man, must thus rid himself of these mental images ingrained since childhood about things, colors, sounds, etc., Beings of the very group we have encountered, connected to various planets with which we have been in contact, including us, you, of the Earth, and, and we of Omo, realized this was necessary. And gradually scientists from various civilizations are bringing to light the true basis of our WAM. Where are the humans on this scale? Does the mathematical model of the universe put forward by Earth physicists with its relativity theory, quantum mechanics, and statistical mechanics an accurate description of the truth? By presenting our WAM theory to you, you will be able to judge the differences for yourselves. We observe that the man of the Earth, which you call man on the street, not initiated to Earth physics, has a very primitive concept of space and the universe that we call WAM. I think the reason I included that entire excerpt was to demonstrate that I am not being overly sensitive or overly attention deficit about things. This Omo stuff is a chore. It's an absolute chore. In fact, it's such a big chore that one wonders if anybody actually intended anybody to read any of this stuff. Hmm. The upshot of this, anyway, seems to be that the Umites have a far more complex understanding of the universe than we have. This is a common message that comes from those beings who supposedly have communicated with contactees. The UMO documents, however, do so with a great deal more detail and much more, at least to my mind, accurate-sounding language. Note that I didn't say accurate language. I said accurate-sounding. This more realistic feel to the UMO documents certainly struck Jacques Vallée, who said this of the authors. It is tempting to dismiss all these documents as childish fakes. But they are clearly more than that. They have just the appropriate amount of misspellings and awkward style to suggest they were written by beings who did not have complete command of human languages, the kinds of beings who would be so anxious to communicate with me that they would put ten times the required value in stamps on an envelope, a very flattering attention indeed. The alleged revelations, if they contain no great surprises, are clever and occasionally stimulating. They could have been produced by a person with a graduate degree in physics and a good acquaintance with biology, especially if that person had access to international meetings where extrapolations and avant-garde ideas are often debated 10 or 15 years before they become reality in scientific magazines. 
a science journalist, a government engineer working on advanced projects, or a frustrated writer could match the psychological profile of the UMO author. You probably caught Valet's use of the first person in that excerpt. He was one of the recipients of the documents. So we've heard an example of the science stuff. What about Umite beliefs or religion? Here's a sample of their philosophies that were contained in a number of translated compilations from UMO documents that have been received over the years, from the 1960s all the way up until the 1980s. The Umite religion is closer to a religious philosophy than a religion itself. If it had to be compared with a terrestrial religion, the example which comes immediately to mind is Buddhism, but excluding the concept of reincarnation. The most fundamental difference compared to our religions seems to be the quasi-total absence of collective ritual and religious hierarchy. Not ritual collectives, but a family life which seems to be turned toward the meditation and the desire for acting in the community for the good of the community. No religious hierarchy, but in fact, they're more closely to look at their political system basing itself on laws and morals resulting from religious Tao, one can undoubtedly consider that their leader are in fact the guards of these religious laws, failing to be the priests for it. It seems that only the new scientific discoveries can make change their manner of seeing. The Umites say to us they integrated the discoveries of science in this religious philosophy. They have, of this fact, answered the fundamental questions that our philosophers are posed since the night of times, namely, who are us, from or come, where go? Why? You will find their answers in the texts. They seem to have reached a point of evolution where them faith directs their acts for the good of their humanity and the improvement of the two invisible universes which control the evolution toward a point omega that they hope for nearest possible intention to woa. Don't worry, I'm not having a stroke. I'm trying my best to read this as it was presented as an English translation on the umo-sciences.org website. I am starting to suspect that maybe I should have used Google Translate for some of this stuff. There are also some examples in, in addition to, to the lack of religious hierarchy that I think was the point of what we just heard. Some examples of, of what we could probably call moral philosophy. This is the conclusion we have arrived at. During our living stage, although we are free, we take part in the universe in a very restricted way. We are only receivers of the fraction of the knowledge our immediate environment offers us. We believe ourselves to be independent beings, and yet we are only simple instruments of the wham-wham. Our function is to be used as observant eyes which see a fraction of the universe. But when we die, we are freed of this task. We are integrated into the WAM OB. We take part fully in the brain of the cosmos. We live in the fullness of the intelligence of Woa. When Jesus of Earth promises you eternal life, this is the meaning of his divine words. Now you can understand all the depth of the moral law dictated by God. When we violate a sacred law, we do it with an attitude of entropy. Every social sin, every sin against what you call charity or love, dissolves the coordination of a social network to some degree. If I sin against my brother, 
that can cause his observational functions to be disrupted, and so I contribute to a slowing down the information gathering of the WAM-BB, i.e., I create entropy, disorder, by slowing down the process of the multiverse. There is a cosmic principle, that of minimal energy. If the cosmos has two giant tendencies that fight between each other, they are nugentropy and entropy. The universal flow of entropy drags the multiverse toward total death until all the mass singularities are converted into radiation energy. But nugentropy fights against this tendency. Apparently the latter is weaker. But we saw that this is an illusion, since in the WAM-B a multiplier effect occurs. Small flows of information modulate great flows of imaginary mass and immense energy, in the same way that a weak current in a transistor controls a high intensity of electrons. The sin you commit against society, the violation of social law, can cause serious disruptions in the wham-wham. This is why the divine Umawoa speaks to us about the anger of God. When Jesus speaks to you about the devil, he exists. Although you interpret his image metaphorically or poetically, the devil is actually temptation. He represents entropy. He is absolute evil, annihilation. Hell is nothing other than death in the form of low-energy radiation, which occurs in a wham, which perishes when entropy overcomes the influences of the imaginary mass caused by the wham-bb. This cosmos, if it is of hip hypocritic mass, dissolves into the cosmic crystal. The souls responsible remain frozen forever in an eternal solipsism unable to be integrated into the WAM-BB. It is seldom that this occurs, but it is theoretically possible. Now you understand why we consider love to be a concept which transcends purely ethical and humanistic values, to transform itself into a concept automatically integrated into science. The devil, hell, evil are mythical for you, or at least escaped from the context of theology. You have used them in such an incorrect way, by personifying them in a way so naive, which they seem to be of no importance for many men. But although we do not give them the same names, we know that we have a transcendent value in Wam Toa, or the history of cosmology. Whoever among you violates Ua deserves to be condemned by all the Uami of the Wam Wam, since it seriously harms us. So one of the fascinating parallels I see here that sort of sort of puts the ummo stuff in the context of earlier contactee writings, especially things like the Ashtar channelings or George Adamski's talk, is here we've got a situation where individual personal sin against society is a force so powerful it could, it could disrupt the universe, right? In those earlier contactee messages, we have a similar threat about the balance of the universe being disrupted, but it was nuclear weapons, uh, more of a geopolitical thing doing it. So the same themes are there. So there's a massive amount of UMO communications that show up, and there, there's a massive amount of material. And Jacques Vallée's account of the UMO experience uh, in his 1991 book, Revelations, I think is a more... It's smaller than the whole Ummo book from 1986 that Wendell Stevens did, but I, I think it's it's a little more accurate and a little more um, a little more objective. That takes the story up to 1991. What happens afterwards in the 1990s is also interesting and worth looking at. 
at the point where Valet was writing in Revelations in, in 91, he offered no real answers, but did relate the speculation that there were some potential suspects in the Ummo affair. I'm going to call it an affair, sounds sophisticated, including original witness Jose Luis Horden Pena. He could be considered a sub, uh, subject, suspect. Later in the 1990s, more information came to light about the origins and, and maybe a revolu- resolution of the affair. Researcher Scott Corrales, who runs Inexplicata, the Journal of Hispanic Ufology, wrote about this in issue 7 of the Excluded Middle, which appeared in spring 1997. And he cited the Spanish ufology journal El, El Ojo Critico. Corrales discussed an investigation into the role that Jose Luis Jordan Peña played in the world of Amo. And after this expose, he came forward and acknowledged that it was an experiment that got a little out of hand. Basically, he claimed to have written all the Amo stuff, and um, it was to be a an experiment, in Corrales' words, quote, aiming at gauging the level of gullibility among Spanish researchers in the 1960s and 70s. So it was a hoax. It was a hoax. Yay, it was all a hoax. We've got some UFO researchers who figured out that it was a hoax and who did it. Then the guy they accused of doing it comes clean and says, yeah, I did it. It was a social experiment, and yikes, it got a little nuts. However, Corrales points out that this doesn't explain everything. Remember the strange material found in the cylinders? Corrales quite correctly points out that polyvinyl fluoride was not something that a a scholar in Spain would really have been able to easily get a hold of, which Valet pointed out. So this raises the specter of not just Ummo being a hoax, a massive hoax that for a long time, had all the marks of something really, really interesting and truly unexplained. Not only raises the idea of Omo being a hoax, but raises the specter of the hoax itself being a tool of manipulation by some other party, that the hoaxer himself was a pawn in a larger game. Who was that entity? Well, some entity that would have access to polyvinyl chloride. Um, So perhaps it's the case that Pena developed his experiment and some kind of military industrial intelligence entity got wind of it and through various channels offered to help by providing the the strips of, uh, of Tedlar and other support like flying saucers that people would see. We know... We know that intelligence agencies in the West had made inroads and connections to various uh, scholarly institutions. And maybe this was the case with Pena, that whatever institutions he was working with had been infiltrated. And by infiltrated, I don't mean, you know, secret spies running around, hiding in broom closets, eavesdropping on professors. I mean professors working on projects with government agencies who make contacts and then provide information. Maybe that's what happened. So that seems to be that, right? We have an admission of a hoax or an experiment. And and basically an experiment is a hoax that you write a journal article about after it's over. We have lingering questions about some aspects, but we seem, I seem, pretty relaxed about 
pegging this as, as being something with terrestrial origins. And yet, and yet UMO persists. The UMO-science.org website provides access to UMO transmissions in various languages with the tacit attitude of the transmissions being of extraterrestrial origin. They have an active Twitter presence announcing new analyses of documents and, and serving, interestingly, as a watchdog, denouncing documents that emerge in the present day that they do not believe are genuinely of Umite, um, of Umite uh, sources. So to a degree, the Umo story continues, which, in all honesty, should not surprise any of us, no matter how ridiculous or how compelling or uncompelling. These things persist despite strong evidence, and in, in this case, admission of their terrestrial roots. Whether it's Adamski or Ashtar, people keep these stories going, often beyond all reason or sense. But that's okay. It's okay, because stories and beliefs are often beyond all reason and sense, and a lot of times, that's what makes them a valuable part of our collective saucer life. In our next encounter, we are heading to Africa. And you can explore links to the material discussed today, as well as various archival episodes of the show, at saucerlife.com. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife. Our email address is thesaucerlife at gmail.com. And if you go to saucerlife.com, you can see all the places to subscribe. You can leave us reviews. Thank you to those who have left reviews already. The Saucer Life Encounter 604 was written and produced by me, Aaron Gullius, and is a Chizo Media production. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you. <laughs>